I want to take you to Acts chapter 16 and Galatians chapter 1 and continuing. How's that? We're going to go on a journey this morning. A journey that uh, is centered around the most prominent church planter, missionary, evangelist. His main occupation was apostle. It was someone known in his early life as Saul of Tarsus and later became better known as the Apostle Paul. Now, Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote the account of the life and ministry of Jesus, he was a physician. He uh, also wrote a second, a a sequel, you might say, because he mentions Theophilus, you know, like this is a follow-up, this is the life and ministry of Jesus. Now I want to tell you about what happened in the early years of the church, and, and that's the Acts of the Apostles. Luke and Paul had a close connection. We're going to look at that just for a little bit this morning. In fact, um, when you look at Acts 1, um, there was a, a prayer meeting started. When Jesus ascended up and the angel says, you know, why are you standing here gazing? You know, go do what he said to do. Go, go wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. So 120 people crowded into this room and they prayed. And in the middle of that prayer meeting, they had a business meeting. And uh, Peter had the idea that, well, we had 12 people. Judas is not with us. Uh, a, a catastrophic failure on his part. A horrible suicide death that he committed. And so they decided to fill that position by a vote. How about that? Um, and they had prayer. They, you know, they said, Lord, you know our hearts. But there was two people nominated for Judas's position. Anybody know their names? Matthias, Justice, Barsabbas, and Joseph. I think this is one of the most comical things that you can read. I, I love reading the Bible just because of stuff like this. Uh, two people were nominated. Matthias got the vote. Well, they cast lots, and however that worked, you know, he got the vote, so he was elected. But when they're describing the two men, they really make sure you know who didn't get the vote. <laughs> and Joseph, also known as Bersabbas, and Justice. So, I don't know. When, when the loser is more, <laughs> more described than the winner, I don't know what's going on there. Um, you know anything about Matthias other than that? Anything Matthias did? Anybody can contribute to our information system here? Well, neither do I. Uh, it's one of those questions that I don't have an answer for. <laughs> so what, what was that? What, what was going on there? We have absolutely no idea what Matthias did. Yet they felt compelled. Now, do you remember the qualifications that they gave that these two men were nominated? They said, from the time of John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus to the witness of Christ's resurrection, they needed nominees that fit that qualification. And so they came up with these two men. Undoubtedly, there was more than just 12 people that followed Jesus around because from his baptism to his resurrection, says, we need people qualified to become part of our group, this 12, so they fill that position. I tend to lean that maybe they jumped the gun just a little bit, especially 
when we go to Galatians chapter 1 and we see someone who introduces himself as an apostle. Now, I'm going to get to Galatians 1 in just a moment. We're going to also visit Acts 16. Um, Galatians is, is possibly the first book in the New Testament that was written in, in the time sequence. It definitely was written before any of the four Gospels were composed. So, you know, we, we're getting like one of the first communications from someone who is involved in church ministry and seeing that the church and the, and the gospel and the person of Jesus is pronounced throughout the known world, this is kind of like, when you're looking at Galatians, you're looking like at maybe the very first letter, very first part of the New Testament that was written. And the strategy that you find in Galatians goes back to Acts, the end of Acts 15 and the beginning of Acts 16. And we're going to go to that in just a moment. I want to show you what this focus is on. Galatians is not a town, or Galatia is not a town, it was a region. So this first slide is going to show you some of the, uh, the, the three missionary journeys. The, the fourth one uh, just goes to Cretan over, so this is just the three. I want you to look at the red and the blue, not the purple. The purple is the third missionary journey. And uh, the red is the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas goes on. They go to Cyprus, go over and land in, in Pamphylia at Perga. And then they make this little loop. They go to uh, Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Lystra is Timothy's hometown. That's where they pick up Timothy as one of their workers. And he makes the loop, comes back, visits all the churches that he had planted, comes back and sails directly back to Antioch. The blue starts at Antioch and it goes overland, and they stop at Derby, Lystra, Iconium, head north, and end up over in Troas. Now I want to show you the next slide because it shows you these regions and how these regions. Remember, he's writing to the churches in Galatia, which principally is Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. I didn't use this as the first one because for some reason they use gray for the second journey. And you see um, it goes north like it's going to Bithynia and into Pontus, but something happens there. So before we read the start of Galatians, I want you to look in Acts 16, the latter part of Acts 16 and beginning of Acts, uh, last part of 15, beginning of, of Acts 16. Um, and this, this is what makes the Bible so real to us is that they had problems. They had issues, okay? They were normal. <laughs> they disagreed on stuff. And some of their disagreements were profound to the point that they just could not come to a solution. They, they just couldn't come to an agreement. And that's chronicled at the end of the first mission's journey uh, Barnabas and Paul told everybody about the miracles that God had done so many neat things. And toward the end of 15, Paul tells Barnabas, let's go back and visit the churches that we established in that first journey. And uh, Barnabas says, yes, let's take John Mark with us. Paul says, no, he's not going with us. He bailed out on us. 
over in Perga. He, he, he didn't stick with it. I'm, I'm not taking a loser. He didn't say that. I'm just kind of like, you know, it kind of comes across that way. He says, I'm not taking someone who quit on us. And Barnabas insisted, Paul insisted. So what happened? They split up. Barnabas took John Mark and went over into Cyprus again. And Paul took Silas. And this is this second journey that Paul takes. And I want you to just follow this with me. In verse 16, he came to Derby, then to Lystra. You can leave that last slide up for a little bit longer if you want to. Where a disciple named Timothy lives, and that's where Timothy becomes part. Now look down in verse 6. I want you to follow this with me because something happens over in Troas. It's very interesting that goes along with what I'm going to share this morning. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Pergia, Galatia, hence Galatians, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. By the way, this is modern-day Turkey, and that's where Scott and McGevney Strickland, we support them as missionaries in Istanbul. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. They tried to go north into Bithynia. But watch this. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go. Now, I think there's two different kinds of decisions we face in our lives. And that's one of these One group is decisions where we know clearly what God's Word says about it. The other decisions are those that are not so clear in God's Word and we're having a sense, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the discerning of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul was never one to do things on a whim. All of this was planned, the strategy. When they prayed and asked God in, in, in Antioch of Syria was the mega church of that day. That's where all of this started was over here in Antioch down to the bottom right. Antioch was the third largest city in the region. 500,000 people at the time that the church was there. It was, it was the church of the highlands in Antioch. And they just planted campuses everywhere else. This was the mega church. It was a mega church. Paul was recruited personally by Barnabas. says, we're having so much growth, we need more teachers. We need more disciples. And so he went all the way and took Paul from his hometown, brought him back, and Paul became one of the teaching prophets and teaching apostles there in the church. Here's, here's just, this is not our thinking. This does not work in our thinking. Five men were praying and fasting to see what God wanted them to do. Lucius, Menaean, and um, I'm not even, I can't remember the third one. But there was Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, and after they prayed, the Holy Spirit said, send Paul and Barnabas out. Now, that wouldn't be our thinking. Our thinking would be, no, you can take anybody else, but these guys are important. They took probably the most two prominent people in the ministry team, and this church was huge. It, was, it dwarfed the church in Jerusalem. Antioch exploded with growth. So here's this church, and they're sending people out, and it's the Holy Spirit telling them what to do. And so they have plans. Second missionary journey, they're off and running. They have plans to go all the way up into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus said no. I wonder sometimes if we would pause long enough to see if he's saying yes to us or no to us. 
Because we like a... This was a good plan. We're going to Bithynia. We're going to share the gospel in Bithynia. They need to hear the gospel. The Spirit of Jesus said no. Now, we know later somebody went to Bithynia because the apostle Peter wrote his letter to the people in Bithynia. But they get over into Troas, and watch this with me. It says, so they passed by Mysia. This is verse 8 in Acts 16. And we're going to go to Galatians 1. So they passed by Mysia down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia. That's a cross The way, you see where Macedonia is. At Troas, they're still in Asia proper. But he has this vision of a man in Macedonia. And the man in in this vision says, come over to Macedonia and help us. That's kind of clear, isn't it? (laughs) How much? Well, I'll need to pray and see what that means by that. No, he says, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia and concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. In verse 10 and 11, you need to circle a two-letter word that's very telling here. It's the word we. You don't see we in the first part of the chapter, do you? And who's writing this? Luke. So somewhere with this vision, with this meeting in Troas, Luke is with them. And the reason why this is important is about what you're about to read in Galatians. Luke now is part of Paul's ministry team. And he's not writing third person plural, them, they. He's writing that we decided, we discern that God was calling us into Macedonia. Now, let's go over to Galatians, and I hope you can just hang in here with me because this is not my typical way of preaching. This is around 49 A.D., early in the church's movement, and Paul is writing a letter. This is kind of like an emergency room setting. This is, he's, he just feels so compelled. What he's heard in Galatia is troubling him. He's heard that people have come in and are teaching false doctrine and even calls these people false brothers. Now, after he does his normal greeting, he doesn't waste any time. When you look at verse 4, this is what he says to the Galatian believers. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and in turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Well, this is, this is a little hyperbole, but he gets his point across here. Even if we, if we change the message, if you hear us changing the message, or an angel from heaven, a, a vision of someone who's maybe masquerading as an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you on these other trips. If if someone's telling you something different, this is what he's saying, let him be eternally condemned. And King James might say, let him be accursed or anathema. He's even saying, let our team be anathema, be cursed, if we brought a different gospel than what you heard at the first. 
And he says, I've already said, so now I say it again. I repeat it. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned or accursed. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I was still trying to please men, I would not be the servant of God, the servant of Christ. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something, and follow this with me because this gets really interesting. Paul hardly ever brings out his credentials as an apostle, but he does here. And the reason why he wants them to know who's endorsed him, by what, who credentialed you, who gave you these credentials, who gave you the authority to do this. He's about to tell them why he has the authority to speak to them in kind of a hard, he would, you know, Paul would just, I don't know if Paul could pastor a very large church today because he would just, he just hurt people's feelings. People would be like, oh, he, he, he really got on to me. Yeah, that's him. But listen to what he says. He says, it isn't something that man came up with. It's not man made up. Watch this in verse 12. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, underline this, rather I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Nobody told me anything about Jesus. He told me everything I know about him. Isn't that interesting? For you have heard from my previous way of life in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my father's. But when God, who set me apart from birth, you know, Paul described himself in another place as an apostle born out of due time. Really, I'm going to tell you what I I think God was doing. Peter and them elected Judas' replacement. God already had someone for his replacement. And that was out of sequence. He did not meet the, the requirements, did he not? He, the qualification, he wasn't there at John's baptism of Jesus, and he wasn't there to witness the resurrection of Jesus, not in person. So he would have, he would have not been on the ballot. But that was man's ballot. The Lord had a different purpose. This is why you see so much of Paul prominent in the Bible is because God had a sovereign purpose for that man. So much so that he encountered him on the way to Damascus that was literally transformational in his life. He says, God called him by his grace to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man. He's again saying, I didn't get any of my ideas from anybody else. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, you ought to underline that. How long did Jesus develop his apostles? Three years. And we know this. During those three years, we don't know where he lived. We know, we, we know the area he, he lived in, Arabia, and that's a huge area. It could be 
It, it was an enormous area. Whether he was, he, he, I don't know, maybe somebody hit him for three years because you know, he had orders to arrest Christians in Damascus and he not only did not carry those orders out, he became one. So I would think people in Jerusalem didn't really like that. But for three years, he was alone in a secluded area and Jesus was personally revealing to him everything about his life. Get this. Luke wrote his account of the, God, of the life and ministry of Jesus from information that Paul gave him. Paul was the only one that Luke was around in a prominent way. And everything in the gospel of Luke came through those three years of revelation that God spoke to the apostle Paul. Alone. He came back and then he says, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with one apostle. And that was Peter. And he said, I didn't see anybody else except James, the brother of Jesus, who became kind of like the council leader in Jerusalem. And he said, I assure you before God, this is verse 20, I assure you before God that I am writing, that what I'm writing to is no lie. Later, why would he resort to that kind of defense? Is because this is hard to believe. That he has spent three years in distant learning setting with Jesus. Jesus telling him, in fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11... And he's talking about what happened in the upper room when Jesus had his Passover meal with his... He says, this is what I received from Jesus. And it's exactly what happened. It's like Jesus started from John's baptism and revealed everything that Paul needed to know as though he was one of the 12. And everything he had, none of it came from a human source. He even said that. He said, I didn't consult with anybody. After three years, I decided to go and meet one of my fellow apostles. I went down and I stayed with Peter for 15 days. That's what he said. And, and they only heard that the man who tried to destroy the church is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Verse, or chapter 2, verse 1. 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and took Titus along also. And I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. Later on in chapter 14, he tells this. And this shows you again that Paul was no one to mess with. He, here's what was going on. He says, why did he write all of this? Why did, even in the start of chapter 3, he says, oh, Foolish Galatians. Now, I just titled this message, O Galatians. I left foolish off. But he, he just challenged them, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you letting people throw you off course? What was going on? Most of these people up in this area were Gentiles. They didn't know anything about religion. They were pagans. They responded, they got saved, he established churches, he developed leadership, he left leadership in charge of those churches, and he would go back and revisit them, make sure they were doing well. And then at some point, when he was over in Ephesus, maybe, he got word that somebody's really throwing these people off course. And he writes this book that you have in front of you, Galatians. Here's what they were doing. They came in and said, you know what? 
parts of the Mosaic law still is required of us, including principally that all the boys and all the men need to be circumcised because you can't be covenant people of God if the men and the boys in the family are not circumcised. They were making this a requirement for salvation. This is why Paul just was adamant, says, anybody who changes the gospel, let them be a curse. So he's dealing with this, um, this conflict, this contradiction between Judaism and Christianity that people have tried to introduce extra things for them to do to make sure they're saved. And Peter arrives in Antioch one day, but he has people with him from Jerusalem, and so he decides he's not going to eat with Gentiles. He reverts back to the pre-Cornelius Peter. And so watch this. In verse 14, he said he confronts Peter, and he says... You're not acting in line with the truth. He says to Peter, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. I guess he started eating pork or something. He says, you're you're not living under this code, even though you're a Jew. And he goes on to say, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Listen to this. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. In chapter 3, Early in verse 1, he says, Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And he says, Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard in the original gospel? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? That might be a question that we need to pose to ourselves. Is are we just trying to be better people? Or we're trying to allow Christ to make us better through his spirit. He says, if you start by the spirit, why would you go back to human effort to make yourself better? We're in, we're in a culture of self-improvement. There's everything. If you, there's all kind of exercise books. And, you know, I, I would love to exercise. It's just, I'm just not as interested in it as I used to be. But there's all kind of weight loss, I mean, from the ads on TV, and they even got some surgery that will help you. But we're in this self-improvement mode, and he says, are we going to resort to doing things that make us look better spiritually? Would it even move over into that category that we we want a better image? a better presentation of ourselves, that we want to we cast ourselves as more spiritual, but are we more spiritual? And this is what he's telling the people in Galatians. These are people he's invested in, and he's trying to rescue them from going down this wrong path. And then he asks them this question in verse 4. Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you his spirit 
and work miracles among you because you observed the law or because you believed what you heard. And he goes on to say, Christ, in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. It always goes back to the cross. I have a couple more places I want to take you to, and this is chapter 5, and this is verse 11. A couple more places. And then I want you to consider some things this morning. He says, brothers, if I was still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Now, for them, it was circumcision. It was a major deal. But what is maybe some of the challenges you're facing that's causing maybe a compromised approach to the gospel? to the sincere, transparent walk with Jesus. He says, if you allow, earlier in this chapter, he says, if you allow yourself to be pulled into this direction, and he's speaking to the men in the church, he says, if you allow yourself to be circumcised because people are pressing you to be circumcised, he says, you're actually fallen from grace. Now, there's some people who don't believe that's possible, But if you look at it in verse 4, it's right there. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Because this is the point he's making. If you can do anything outside of the power of Christ to get to God, then why was the cross necessary? Why did he have to die for us? Why did he have to suffer for us? In verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature, there's a conflict within us. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And I think all of this goes back to Paul having this, it's really amazing to me how Paul was transformed from a Pharisee of Pharisees, rule-keeping, rule-promoting, you do this, you check this off, to a man that said, I feel like I'm called to Gentiles that none of these rules apply to. None of the law of Moses applies to the Gentiles when they did have some kind of conclusion about, well, what do we require of Gentile people who do not have our religious history? He says, don't eat food offered to idols. Don't eat blood, which is forbidden. And stay away from sexual immorality, which that's pretty good too. But none none of the Mosaic law that he carried with him says, it's the cross and the resurrection, plus you need to do this and this and this. And I think in our day and time, we need to go back to the simplicity of the, of the gospel and say it's only by faith in Christ Jesus that we're redeemed. Here, this is the 500th year anniversary of Martin Luther on October the 31st. See, we, we call that a different... It's All Saints Day, by the way. October 31st is All Saints Day. Because he nailed objections to the church's requirements on his parish that he felt like 
were extra biblical. And as a Catholic priest, he said, I'm not going to, that's not going to come into the church I pastor in this city. And he suffered for it. But what he was standing up to is there's nothing but Jesus that saves. He's the only name given among people whereby we must be saved. It's the only way. I'll, I'll uh, ask the praise team to come up and share just, I'm going to share a few personal things with you before we pray. Um, if, you've, if you've never heard or watched a video or heard a podcast by Nabil Karishi, um, I want to encourage you to do so. Because as of the last 48 hours, um, his voice is now only recorded. In his 30s, as a young married man with a small child, he lost his battle with cancer just a, a day or so ago. I've been connected to this guy. He's, uh, when I preached a series on Islam versus Christianity, the Quran versus the Bible, Jesus versus the, uh, Muhammad, you remember that? Nabil Qureshi probably influenced me more to love Muslims and to pray for Muslims, and it really opened the door for me to speak to two guys at Starbucks that I still when I see them, still have a platform to talk to them. I, I hope both of them have come to the Lord, but I've been able to share the gospel. But Nabil Krishi was an Orthodox Muslim college student, I think at Virginia, VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, when a Christian college student who knew the evidence of the Bible with manuscripts and knew exactly why the Bible can be believable other than you just saying it's believable. Talk to him and after a journey with him, led him to the Lord. What a powerful voice for us to witness to Muslims. Listen, we need to love the lost. No matter who they are, what nation they're from, what religion they're from. You know, the Davis just saw a lot of Hindus come to know Jesus. They're still coming to know Jesus. Muslims around the world are coming to Jesus. We're hearing from missionaries who are in places like Iran that they're having dreams and visions. It was a vision and a dream that Nabil Qureshi was convinced that Isa, Jesus, was the way of salvation. And when he accepted the Lord, it radically transformed him. His mom and dad, he took time, long time before he told them. He knew what was going to happen. They wrote him off. They disowned him. Refused to come to his wedding. Had nothing to do with him. But in his long bout with cancer, his last couple of videos said, my mom and my dad and my sister are here. Helping take care of me. He leaves behind a wife and a small child. You have a voice for Jesus. Use it. 